0: If you enjoy listening to clinical conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr. Johnny Bargett and I'm a TMC member. We had such a great time with Dr. Johnny Guckin, our TMC co-chair, talking about dermatology and common skin presentations for general internal medics, that we've brought him back to talk about a very important topic and that is skin cancer. Welcome Dr. Johnny Guckin and it's a pleasure to chat to you about this. Why are we talking about this?
0: Uh, Thanks for having me, Johnny. It's always a delight. We're talking about skin cancer because skin cancer is so important. BCCs and SCCs, so the keratinocyte cancers, are the most common forms of cancer on the planet. And people who work in general practice, people who work in acute medicine, generally across the board and, and various different specialties, you will see lesions and lesions scare people because they look scary or because they're hard to diagnose. And yet, actually, there is a method to some of the madness. And I hope to get some of that across.
1: Fantastic. I think it's really important because we will see patients come in through the acute internal medicine training career or the general internal medicine training pathways, the front door clinics. We will see patients who come in with different presentations and we might just notice an abnormal lesion on their skin. Where do you get referrals from most often out with the GP referral system?
0: So from all different directions, really, and it really depends on where you're based. I'll say kind of for the advice that I'm giving so far is that lesions is a consultant domain. And eventually everyone with a particularly pigmented lesion, but most lesions, if not close to all lesions, should eventually get seen by a dermatology consultant before being appropriately reassured if a doctor is deemed it concerning in the first place. So I'll say everything going forward in this episode with that caveat as I'm not a dermatology consultant yet. Now, uh, where do I get referrals from? So in Leeds, for example, where I work, it has a good system which has been put together by a number of, of excellent registrars who've come before me and consultants who worked with them. We have a system called Patient Pass, which is an online referral system where people put on our emergency referrals. We have in more recent times introduced a skin cancer referral system where essentially... From anywhere in our three hospitals in the trust, you can fill in a form. Uh, it's suspected skin cancer, and generally, the review of that is done slightly differently to the emergency referrals. It will get triaged by the emergency person on call, registrar-wise, but then it has to be discussed with the consultant. Photographs will have to have been taken and certain questions will have had to be answered. So there is a a protocol where I work and there'll be different protocols everywhere in the country uh, within dermatology. Some places they'll just say, no, you have to go back to the GP and refer in that way. Some places will say, oh, we'll come and have a look at it right now. So it depends on on your system. I get most of my non-GP referrals from medical boards usually from either, it's actually usually quite early junior doctors or consultants saying, can you refer that? And as with a lot of dermatology referrals, they are of varying quality, but we are never, ever, ever critical of any referral for query skin cancer.
1: So I think it's really helpful just to let the listeners know that basically it seems like any lesion that anybody has a concern about, if it's reasonable to them, then it's reasonable to make a referral.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. We'll talk about thresholds later on in terms of management, but I encourage people to have extremely low threshold to refer. If you're pretty sure it's a seborrheic keratosis, fine, good, confidently make that diagnosis. You should be able to make a diagnosis of a sebk by IMT level, at least reg level, and certainly be able to run a lesion by a consultant. And they should be able to say that's a sebk. For most sebk's, there are quite a few steps in the neck, but for the more obvious ones. But other than that, yeah, referring.
1: So just so the listeners know, what is a seborrheic keratosis and what would it look like?
0: Seborrheic keratosis is the most common referral that we get in skin cancer clinics, bar none, across the board, no matter where you are. They are incredibly common basal cell tumours. They're not basal cell carcinomas, they're benign basal cell tumours, and they are common signs of wisdom for my patients. Because you start getting them over the age of 30. I've started looking to make sure that i have not got any yet. They usually pop up on the back of patients, but can also be on the face. Really anywhere, to be honest, a lot of the time. They appear stuck on, almost like a fridge magnet. And you can just, just as I see, have just gone stuck on the lesion. They have various different features. Some have lots of like looking like crater-like, and some have little yellowy-white dots on them, and there's loads of different types that you can look at online. Seb case, I generally tend to say, because they can be so diverse in their appearance, it's a case of pattern recognition, looking and seeing a lot of them, and you get a feel for what is a Seb K. If a lot of lesions, and again, we're starting to talk about principles here, if a lot of lesions look the same, I pretty much identical, and they look stuck on, they're likely to all be Seb K's, because the chances of you having multiple lesions that are melanoma, or SECs, BCCs, even then, is actually very unlikely.
1: It's really helpful. So we've already kind of alluded to the different types of skin cancers that there are. Going back to Just summarising what type of cancers there are, just tell the listeners what there could be in a lesion. How can you tell a melanoma from a squamous cell carcinoma from a a basal cell carcinoma?
0: Yeah, loads of different ways to categorise these. You can look at what is pigmented and what is not pigmented. Now, that's slightly complicated because all of this is slightly complicated in some ways, but just grossly speaking, you can have pigmented cancers or pigmented lesions and non-pigmented lesions. Or you could say you've got keratinocyte, cancers, which are BCCs, SCCs, they're usually scaly or ulcerated, or I've got lots of blood vessels. They're not usually brown, though some can be, versus in your melanocytic lesions, which are pigmented. Okay. There are exceptions with everything because there's so many different types of dermatology lesions. There are amelanotic melanomas. So there are terrifyingly, there are melanomas, which don't have any pigment. Another one that make dermatologists kind of wake up sweating overnight. (laughs) And then there are BCCs, for example, which are pigmented, and so there's lots of overlaps, but generally you've got your BCCs, SCCs, and your melanomas. They're the main boys you're looking out for.
1: So everybody will know about the ABCD criteria for assessing whether someone's lesion has a melanoma flavor to it, so to speak. Can we just talk about that and how we assess for these different criteria?
0: Yeah, so ABCD is the thing we teach in medical school. It is strictly for just looking at a lesion on examination. So In dermatology, we actually have two levels of or multiple levels of examining things. You could say you examine it clinically, you examine it dermoscopically, and then you can say you examine it histologically. All three of those different areas will have different levels of things that you're suspicious about, but ABCDE is clinically only. So clinically looking at um, a lesion, if it is asymmetrical, if it has irregular borders, if it has multiple colors or does change color, if it is getting bigger, or generally if it is changing, these are things you should be thinking, ah, I need to get this lesion looked at.
1: So I think basically on that level, it's a really helpful tool, isn't it? Just to flag up, this lesion looks abnormal. I need to refer this lesion. Is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, it's, it's not complicated, but you know, it's, it's that way for a reason because melanoma is, can be catastrophic. There's no reason to make it too complex on that level. There are ways you can, you know, what we would sometimes look at like the seven-point checklist, which we can help categorize risks in a slightly more nuanced way.
1: What, what is the seven-point checklist, Johnny?
0: So basically I would encourage people to have a look at it, but seven by checklist or the Glasgow seven point checklist, which essentially is broken down into major and minor features. And if you've got a major feature, you get two points per feature. And then if you get minor features, you get one point per feature, basically, Score of three or more suggests that you should be referred. The major features are, just like some of the things I've said, an irregular border, irregular pigmentation, or change in the size. Minor features, things are a bit more subtle, so inflammation, itch, or altered sensation. If it's bigger than other lesions, so if it stands out, or is an ugly duckling, particularly, so if it's a diameter of over seven millimeters, I think, and if it's oozing or crusting. Now, some of those minor features aren't always ones you would associate with melanoma, but we're not necessarily just talking about melanoma here. We talk about kind of all skin cancers in this context. There are then features which you would want to kind of think about, which suggest that a lesion is benign. So it has the opposite of these. So if it's a regular color, it's regular in terms of its border. If it's not raised, for example, but its surface is regular, if it's growing really quickly, generally skin cancers, and it's all relative, but skin cancers don't do things over days, they do things over weeks to months. Like I said, if it's stuck on, I think it's a sebk. If you can dimple it by putting pressure with your thumbs applying to the lesion, then you're much more likely to be a dermatofibroma. And then sometimes we say other reassuring features are they're in younger people, so a lesion that isn't a in a child. I don't necessarily agree with that one because kids can have all kinds of weird tumors. I'm currently revising for my SCE exam and looking at the pediatric section, and the sheer number of eponymous syndromes of tumors that I need to remember is quite a lot.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm more aware of now is that certainly with the messaging about use of sun cream, sun lotion, the sun exposure that the population has is increasing. And that might not just be just due to sun exposure in the outdoors, but also to sunbed use. Thoughts mm-hmm. on that? And, and obviously, can you just talk a little about the risk factors for Malignant melanoma?
0: Yeah, so I'll talk about some bad things first, because it's important. I think there's a generational thing here, and these things come around again. So there's a generation who didn't have sun cream and they are coming through with their keratinocyte cancer. So they have, they're coming with loads of sun damage, with they've lots of actinic keratosis, which is a pre-SCC kind of tumor. And they have BCCs, they have lots of SCCs and they have, some of them have melanoma as well, which is worrying. Then you have those who have had sun cream and are generally okay. And then you have people who use sunbeds, but you know, that is still happening despite the fact that we know the risk of sunbeds it's a bit like cigarette smoking people do it anyway but i think that people don't fully understand the risks so i think i put something on twitter recently about sunbeds or commented on about sunbeds and i got a lot of abuse from random people on twitter as what well happens on social media but Essentially, there's a really good fact page on the American Academy of Dermatology website on sunbeds, and essentially they will explain that indoor tanning sunbeds can increase the risk of developing SCCs by 58% and BCCs by 24%. And if you use sunbeds before the age of 20, you increase your chances of developing melanoma by 47%. And, uh, your risk increases with it every time you do it. Melanoma kills and some beds cause melanoma. In my opinion, they should all be banned, but I should have that opinion of a dermatologist. You asked about risk factors for melanoma. I mean, we have our own criteria in dermatology, but generally the principles are the two big questions I was taught as a teaching fellow in dermatology to ask about our past history of melanoma and family history of melanoma. They're the two big ones because there are genetic melanomas. Okay. I also ask about family history of pancreatic cancer because there are melanoma syndromes or genetic syndromes which can cause pancreatic cancer as well as melanoma, okay? Other things then you've got your, if you are look like me and are incredibly pale skinned, if you have red hair, if you have blue or green eyes, if you have... A history of sunburn a particularly blistering sunburn as a child or generally in the past if you use sunbeds if you've lived abroad so i often ask the question not just what job did you do but i ask more about the job have you worked outside have you ever done that job abroad so someone says oh i've been an engineer i'll say okay what kind of engineer and it turns out oh, well, actually i was an engineer in the army i was in the gulf for 15 years like right fair enough that's quite a big risk then you've got people who've got lots of moles if you have um, over 100 moles, or if you've got a lot of irregular looking moles, then that is a significant risk factor because we would consider that to be something called atypical mole syndrome. So that significantly increases your risk. And then, like I said, if you use sunbeds, uh, particularly over 50 sessions in a year, that's like on our criteria, but I would say over 10 sessions of beds in a year is loads. And I would be thinking, just be careful and be cautious here. Problem is, is that melanoma is wild. Melanoma is scary. You know, we all have experience with different cancers melanoma is up there with the scariest of cancers because it can act so fast you can get people who have moles which don't look at all like melanomas and end up being melanomas we are as dermatologists still surprised sometimes when things come up with melanomas and we get melanomas that are incredibly aggressive that metastasize relatively quickly because we don't always know how long they have been there for they can be very subtle for a long time then suddenly change so there's a lot of unknowns with melanoma and that drives the culture that we have within dermatology to be very cautious and i talked about thresholds earlier so therefore when i see patients with lesions and my feeling is that if i can't sleep at night With a lesion still on a patient, take it off. So yeah, it's interesting. I've actually, within medicine, I had never seen a patient with metastatic melanoma because as I'm reg, right, I've not done our melanoma rotation yet. So I've not actually had a huge experience on the other side of things just yet to come back to me in maybe a year or two. But there's a lot happening within melanoma and a lot more treatments that are out at the moment in terms of melanoma. But it's a very uncertain, very cautiously driven area and i find that even within dermatology something that i've had a culture shock with because for a lot of these patients you're very high risk if they have even a millimeter of change that can sometimes be enough to be mean to melanoma and when you've got 57 moles that look a bit off and loads of photographs to go through in clinic and a lot of people on your list that's really tough as a clinician to manage never mind the patient trying to manage the anxiety of dealing with that so so many different variables in what is a really complex and challenging area
1: You just made me wonder whether with our clerking performance we have a social history obviously that we have to go through and it's so important just to individualize our history taking to our patients mainly we're focusing on Occupation, you've already talked about smoking history, alcohol history. Should we be talking about sun exposure history just generally? Should that be something that we talk about? Or uh, is that something that really is more within the routine kind of checkup with the GP and then maybe some screening that you're talking about?
0: I think within GP land, if you're talking about any lesion, yes, absolutely. If patients concerned about lesions, absolutely. I think sun can have our view of the exposure can have. Obviously, positive and negative effects on your health. It causes skin aging as well as skin cancer, and people don't really realize that whenever they're going on the sun beds, that they're aging themselves. They're breaking up the DNA, they're changing the DNA, so it causes problems that way. But then there are people who get literally get happiness from the sun. So treat seasonal affective disorder. You want to go out in the sun. Though interestingly, sun beds cannot be used to treat seasonal affective disorder. It uh, will not effectively anyway, according to the evidence. And then also for vitamin D. Vitamin D is obviously good for the sun. However, there's no evidence that sunbeds are effective for vitamin D treatment. You need proper sun. And then you have there are certain skin conditions which are affected by the sun. So we have psoriasis and eczema are made better by the sun. So I know patients who have sunbeds in their homes and that they've bought somewhere that they use for their eczema and psoriasis. And that's not necessarily safe. but. They have the autonomy to be able to do that you know, for themselves. And then there are conditions where something makes things worse. So a whole host of photosensitive photo aggravated conditions, lupus, systemic lupus, erythematosus, or cutaneous lupus being the main one that I would think of off the top of my head. To answer the question, should it be asked across the board? I think if I suggested that, there might be a backlash, <laughs> being too dermatology-centric. But I think if we're talking in histories, being holistic, and thinking about you know, diets, exercise, it's up there.
1: So we've covered quite a lot about malignant melanoma and I'm keen just to ask how you might identify or know how to recognize whether something looks abnormal such as an SCC or a cell carcinoma or a basal cell carcinoma.
0: Yeah. So. Melanomas, you're looking for the ugly duckling lesion, so the lesion that stands out, because you don't generally get lots of multiple melanomas at the same time, incredibly unlucky, whereas in patients with keratinocyte cancer, so BCC and SCCs, people do sometimes get multiple ones, though again, less likely than just having one. What you're looking for is a lesion that stands out, you're looking for in BCCs, you're looking for something that has a pearly appearance, a rolled edge. It's got some funny vessels, so arborizing vessels is what we look for. If you're lucky enough to have a dermatoscope anywhere near you, and you look at it and you see arborizing vessels, so like they look like little kind of seaweed or they look like um, kind of tree branches, that's a really distinctive feature of BCCs. You, but you can, they can BCCs can be nodular, BCCs can be superficial, um, they can be just ulcers. In squamous cell carcinomas, they're a little bit less specific. So usually they're ulcerated, they're no, not always. They usually are fleshy, they are raised and have an irregular base. SECs can be tough to differentiate from actinic keratosis sometimes, or Bowen's disease, which is SEC in situ, and especially if let's say someone comes in with a keratin horn, um, so they've got a big horn of keratin stuck on their ear, for example, what you're looking for for an SEC is the base. If the base is irregular and very fleshy, then you're thinking an SEC, if it's just jutting straight out from the skin, it might be more likely to be an actinic keratosis. It's all on a spectrum of disease. If you have lots of AKs, you're statistically more likely to have SCCs. You're looking on sun-exposed areas as well. So bald men on the scalp, very common sight for SCCs in particular. On the face, lots of risk factors for BCCs on the face. Particularly in the, like the H zone, so it's basically so you're talking about kind of on your your nose, or basically around your cheeks, and then just down down the side. There are kind of high risk lesions, and you might want to do Mohs micrographic surgery for treating those. And you can also get SCC on the arms. Interestingly, though, BCCs are almost never on the hands. I was chatting to a consultant about this because I saw one recently and my consultant said that he's only seen five of those in his career, or maybe he can count on one hand the number of BCCs he's seen in the dorsal surface of a hand, which is quite interesting. We don't know why that's the case. Other little tidbit for BCCs, there was a study in Australia which looked at the side of the face that people get BCCs on and the study showed that men were more likely to get it, I might get this the wrong way around, but men were more likely to get it on the right-hand side because of the side of the road they drive on, and men were more likely to be drivers in that particular cohort because there's a bit of an old study, so a lot of kind of old stereotypes. And women more likely to be passengers, so they get it on the other side when driving. And I thought that was fascinating about the way we interact as a society it can affect the pathology that we end up getting.
1: That is really interesting, actually. And um, I guess it's useful just to have an appreciation for just the patterns of disease and the habits that we have as, as human beings we've talked about so much johnny and i think you know it'd be possible just to talk more and more about this but i think there's only so much that a podcast can do justice when we want to look at pictures of these images and i guess <laughs> we want to encourage our listeners to go out and just look at the you know the images that we can find on appropriate textbooks and just look at our patient's skin yeah. and just be attentive to that and I think especially during the hot weather, you know, people will be wearing less clothing and you'll maybe see more more skin whenever you're seeing patients in the hot wards. Do you have any tips or just general advice when you're reviewing patients who've come in and you're just seeing lesion? What What are your main pieces of advice?
0: So lesion examination is interesting is that... I think if you spotted one lesion, look at the whole patient, try to look out for any other lesions, then it's kind of like, you can have a systematic approach, like doing a chest x-ray, you, you know, you could, you could go through the whole head to toe, or you could just jump straight in for the lesion you're looking at. A lot of this is pattern recognition. And the more you see, the better you get at this. Some of it is like, you, you have consultant dermatologists who, who look at things dermoscopically and they say, this is a BCC. I can't tell you why it is. I just know it is. And there's a little bit of that to it because we do definitely, dermatology in particular, do a lot of pattern recognition. You can look online to DermNet.NZ has got a lot of good pictures on it, particularly for skin lesions, because we talked about appropriate resources. One of the challenges is being able to diagnose lesions as skin of colour, because actually whilst people who look like me are, are, you know, kind of pale are, statistically more likely to get skin cancers particularly melanoma that doesn't mean that it's impossible for people with skin of color to get melanoma it's absolutely of course possible there's more recent evidence which suggests that you're much less likely possible to get melanoma from the sun if you're what we call fitzpatrick type six skin or black skin you're significantly less likely to get melanoma from the sun and it's more likely to be from genetics or viral causes but skin of colour, you're much more likely to get melanoma on acral sites, so hands and feet, and you're much more likely to get, generally, something we call melanonychia, so usually linear melanonychia, so lines and streaks in your nails, which may be benign or malignant, depending on the appearance. So there are ethnic differences that we need to consider, and it's not just, oh, if you're really pale, you're more at risk. There are nuances to this, certainly. So Part of that is history. Part of that is your wider examination and appreciation of the whole patient.
1: I did want to ask you about skin types and and you've summarised that nicely. I think, you know, signpost our listeners to just researching and learning more about different skin types, because obviously it's so important and I think under recognised in the education of of skin patients.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that's a whole podcast on itself in terms of dermatology, skin of colour. But it's one of the reasons why this is so important, because if it's taught badly, then that will directly affect outcomes and patients will not do as well. Because it is incredibly important, particularly melanoma, to get these lesions picked up quickly. So if you're looking at patients' skin of colour, generally, if you're looking for lesions and looking at lesions, making sure you're checking hands and feet as well as your head-to-toe examination because a lot of the time people don't look on their hands and feet. I think that's the other thing I wanted to briefly mention was about giving advice to patients about monitoring for moles because it's not always done all that well practically. Patients don't always know how to monitor their moles. If they've got lots of moles, we say, oh yeah, keep an eye on it. But like, what do you mean by that? I've recently in Leeds created a little resource locally for how, how to advise on doing that. And the general tips that we give are to essentially don't do it by yourself so have a friend family member partner etc at home to do it with you so that you can Look in certain areas that you can't see. You can't see your whole back, for example. You might need to use mirrors if you've not got someone to help that. You might want different people to say different time frames to check your moles, but I generally say every six weeks. If you've got a lot of moles, check your moles every six weeks. Have photographs, whether it's on your phone or printed out photographs. Keep them in a safe space so you know where you're going. Get your photographs out. Get your friend or family member. Have a look at your moles. Take photographs and update these. Look everywhere. So look between your fingers, between your toes, soles of your feet, genital area, don't miss out. And have it set in your diary that you need to check this at intermittent periods because it's not really enough to be able to say, oh yeah, I kind of, I take my moles every few months and yeah, you know, my other half looks at my back. That's not really enough because if you've got high risk of melanoma, you need to be really vigilant. And generally, if you're in that kind of at-risk category, and you've engaged in dermatology services, they will usually have some sort of access point, like nurse specialists who are amazing, who you can contact if you've got concerns, or of course, when in doubt, GP and two-week wait referrals aren't always two-week waits, but um, in, in, in the reality in terms of time frame. but you'll always get in if you've
1: got concerns generally. I think the advice that you've given has really helped me certainly and i hope it will for the listeners i guess in the interest of that i'd just like to say thanks johnny and it's been an absolute pleasure once again we'll wrap things up so um once again dr johnny guckin thank you so much
0: No problem. at all absolute pleasure. I would recommend people have a look online, various different sources, YouTube videos, speak to dermatology consultants, shadow in skin cancer clinics, loads of them are happening and get as much advice as possible rather than just taking my advice. As a kind of middle career dermatology reg who's yet to experience a lot of this stuff yet, there's a whole world of really interesting things out there in skin cancer. So do gather as much information as you possibly can.
1: And maybe even consider applying for dermatology, our listeners and explore the career that you've pursued yourself.
0: Yes, like that's a great question. it's the best it's the best job in the world.
1: All right. Well, thanks so much. and once again, Dr Johnny Gokin.